Good evening. The Kenosha DA decides not to prosecute the cop who shot Jacob Blake in the back seven times. Georgia voters head to the polls, and the mayor of New York and the governor struggle with a changing pandemic. With these and other stories, I'm Paul Durienzo with the WBAI News for Tuesday, January 5th, 2021. In breaking news, a Wisconsin prosecutor announced Tuesday that he will not file criminal charges against a white police officer who shot 29-year-old Jacob Blake, who was black, in the back in Kenosha last summer. Kenosha County District Attorney Michael Gravely made the announcement moments ago. Then the statute requires that the district attorney, the elected district attorney in that county, must determine if there's a basis to prosecute any of the involved law enforcement. And it is my decision now that I announce today before you that no Kenosha law enforcement officer in this case will be charged with any criminal offense based on the facts and the laws as I will describe them to you now. So it is our decision that no charge will be filed. I'm going to also tell you, just because I think it is important, that that no charge will be filed against Jacob Blake in regards to this incident as well. Uh, that uh, for many of the same reasons, uh, uh, in terms of an overall discussion about this case, uh, that is not something that is something that the district attorney's office intends to pursue. Kenosha County District Attorney Michael Gravely. Jacob Blake survived the shooting but was paralyzed from the waist down. The shooting sparked protests on violent and more than 250 people were arrested in the days that followed. Officer Rustin Shesky fired seven shots from close range as Blake opened the door of his car, striking him four times and paralyzing him from the waist down. The incident was caught on a bystander video. His children were in the car. Meanwhile, earlier today, Kyle Rittenhouse, the teenager charged with fatally shooting two men and wounding a third at a protest sparked by Blake's shooting, pleaded not guilty to all counts in an appearance by video in Kenosha County Circuit Court. He was charged with first-degree reckless homicide and five other criminal counts related to the shootings. Jury selection for Rittenhouse's trial in Kenosha is scheduled to begin on March 29th. The 18-year-old Illinois resident was freed in November after his attorneys posted $2 million bond. The father of the victim, Jacob Blake Sr., at a news conference last night, says protesters are not afraid of news the National Guard has been called in. Attempted murder. He tried to kill my son. He didn't try to take my son down. He tried to kill my son and could have killed my grandchildren. He could have killed the young lady and the child that was standing directly that angle from him, which you will see and which his lawyers will show. I think it's clear cut. There's no misunderstanding. He shot him seven times in his back unjustifiably think about how it looks what is the national guard for they're going to deliver mail they got ice cream cones (laughs) what do you think they're here for we're ready we're ready the father of the victim jacob blake senior concrete barriers are being erected in downtown kenosha with thousands of feet of steel fencing erected around the county courthouse. Police say they're considering designating protest zones and enforcing a curfew. 
And the Environmental Protection Agency has finalized a rule to limit what research it can use to craft public health protections. The rule has been in the making since the early days of the Trump presidency. It requires researchers to disclose the raw data involved in their public health studies before the agency could rely upon the conclusions, including evaluating how much a person's exposure to a chemical increases the risk of harm. EPA Administrator Andrew Wheeler signed the final rule last week. They'll be published in the Federal Register tomorrow. Wheeler blamed opposition to the rule to smoke-filled room deal-making by environmentalists. Opponents of this rule have made unsubstantiated claims against it and mis- misrepresented its effect, which makes me wonder what their motive is. I believe a number of the critics are very cynically trying to kill this effort because they prefer the agency to make decisions in proverbial smoke-filled back room where they don't have to explain how the agency reached a particular decision on a pesticide or chemical. I look at the environmental justice communities in particular. EPA Administrator Andrew Wheeler. Researchers argue that the rule will actually restrict the EPA from using its most consequential research on human subjects because it includes confidential medical records. The Trump administration has been trying to lock in as many policies as possible before President-elect Joe Biden takes office. A senior attorney for the Environmental Defense Fund is Ben Levitin. What Wheeler is doing here is tying the hands of future administrations and limiting their ability to protect public health. He's seizing on this one factor of whether underlying data for a study is publicly available and then limiting EPA's ability to consider scientific studies that utilize any confidential data. But there are a lot of valid reasons, like protecting medical privacy, that some data just can't be released, and that is not reflective of the quality or rigor of a scientific study. How should this process play out? How is it usually played out up to this point? EPA sets public health protections based on the best available science. It is crucial that when EPA determines what level of stringency to set public health protections, it reflects the risk that the public actually faces. This rule could put an end to that. This rule could say EPA is not going to give full consideration to certain studies that demonstrate a risk to the public just because some of the underlying data is not publicly available. What's wrong with just making the data available? Protecting the privacy of medical patients. These are studies that look at the health risk that people face from pollution and toxic chemicals. And it involves often looking at hospital data, the diseases that people face. And so there are vital privacy interests at stake here. So, yeah, I don't really understand how people believe environmental justice are at odds with the EPA. How do they come to be that? There's been a long history of major polluters trying to get certain studies suppressed because if EPA can't look at the studies, then they can't set limits on pollution that reflect the studies. So this has been going on for decades and under the Trump administration, both Administrator Pruitt and now Administrator Wheeler have really taken up the cause that major polluters have been pushing for for so long, trying to permanently prevent EPA from being able to adequately protect the public. What kinds of pollutants we're talking about? Are there any uh, examples that you can give us of how this has affected people's health? 
one clear example is particle pollution. It's air pollution emitted from coal-fired power plants and motor vehicles gets inhaled and causes tens of thousands of premature deaths in America a year because of all of the health problems that it causes. And a lot of the harms of that pollution are demonstrated in studies that rely on medical data with serious patient privacy implications. So those are the kinds of studies that we're talking about EPA not being able to give full consideration to. Under this rule, they could dismiss the study saying, well, you're not releasing the data because whatever your problem is, you know, and your problem is privacy regulations at hospitals, and we're not going to implement it. EPA, in the course of a rulemaking, could say that the certain data is not publicly available, so they're not going to give full consideration to a particular study. It's notable that in the course of this rulemaking, EPA was very cagey about the actual impact that this policy would have and did not in any way give the public a clear sense of the public health stakes here. Two weeks to go. What's the process? What happens next? They are publishing the rule tomorrow. So it will be final and published in the Federal Register, which is the last step from their perspective. But this will certainly come under significant challenge. It will be heavily litigated. And we are planning to ask the Biden administration to take immediate action to reverse this rule. Is there a problem once a rule is put into place and getting it reversed? There's a process that has to be followed, but we feel in this case, the rule is so blatantly unlawful and it's baseless. There's no reason to keep it in place. So we're hopeful that those steps can be completed quickly. Ben Levitin is a senior attorney for the Environmental Defense Fund. Although the new administration will probably seek to overturn the rule, the effort might take months, if not longer. Conservatives have been particularly critical of a Columbia University analysis of a widely used pesticide, chloropyrifos, showing it caused brain damage in babies. And today is a key runoff election in Georgia, deciding two Senate seats and whether control of the chamber will go to Democrats or remain in the hands of the GOP. Republican Senators David Perdue and Kelly Loeffler face Democratic challengers John Ossoff, who is a documentary filmmaker, and the Reverend Raphael Warnock, a pastor in Atlanta at Martin Luther King Jr.'s Old Church. Democrats must win both contests. Biden narrowly carried Georgia in the November 3rd presidential election. With tensions high in the state, a state that's bitterly divided, police have been called to guard polling places following threats. North of Atlanta and Cherokee County, officers were sent to 40 locations after a threat was sent to election workers. The FBI is investigating. Meanwhile, Democrat John Ossoff spoke to reporters this morning before casting his ballot. Mystery unfolding in Georgia right now. I want to encourage everybody to be a part of it. We can beat COVID-19. We can surge vaccine distribution and make sure testing and vaccines are free for every American. We can put Georgia's own CDC in charge as it should be of our national pandemic response. We will be able to pass $2,000 stimulus checks for the people next week when we win these races in Georgia. And Georgia voters have never had more power than you have today. 
and the beautiful spring-like weather in January, Georgia. That was Senate candidate John Ossoff earlier today. Both President Trump and President-elect Joe Biden were campaigning in Georgia yesterday. Trump had only a few words about the Republican candidates, but spent time claiming falsely he won the state, spinning debunked conspiracy theories and threatening his own vice president, Mike Pence, who has the unenviable job of officially certifying the results of the Electoral College tomorrow. And I hope Mike Pence comes through for us, I have to tell you. I hope that our great vice president, our great vice president comes through for us. He's a great guy. Of course, if he doesn't come through, I won't like him quite as much. Now, Mike is a great guy. He's a, he's a, he's a wonderful man and a, a smart man and a man that I like a lot. But he's going to have a lot to say about it. And he, you know, one thing with him, you're going to get straight shots. He's going to call it straight. Biden kept the focus on the coronavirus epidemic, claiming Trump is ignoring the carnage. For the last months, this administration has gotten off to a god-awful start. The president spends more time whining and complaining than doing something about the problem. I don't know why he still wants the job. He doesn't want to do the work. No Democrat has won a Senate race in Georgia in two decades, but opinion surveys show both races are very close. Turnout by both Democrats and Republicans has been high with extensive use of absentee voting. And Julian Assange, who narrowly escaped extradition to the United States to face espionage charges and a possible long prison term, will be seeking bail tomorrow through his lawyers. They'll request that he be temporarily released from the maximum security Belmarsh prison in southeast London. Assange has been held at Belmarsh since he was arrested at the Ecuadorian embassy in London in 2019. Musician and Pink Floyd frontman Roger Walters supported the call for bail. This is a battle not just for the life of of one great, truly great journalist, Julian Assange. It's a battle for the survival of the human race. If we give up the fourth estate, if we allow the United States government to crucify a journalist on the grounds that he revealed war crimes by them, then we give up our access to the real world. And we say, okay, we will believe what you tell us. This government murdered journalists by machine gunning them from a helicopter in Baghdad in 2007. And we know they did. And here is the proof and we're going to publish it. We'll say, you can't do that because if you do, we're going to kill you. Is that the world we want to live in? No. That is not the world we want to live in, and we will not stand for it. Musician Roger Waters. Investigative journalist Kevin Gasola publishes the blog Shadowproof. He's been covering this story for several years. He says the judge had already decided Assange was guilty, but denied extradition on grounds of the mistreatment Assange would face if sent back to the United States. She agreed. She believed that. But then in a very individualistic sense, she's deciding that he should not be sent to the United States. But because of their lack of solidarity, I think we don't have a stronger ruling from the judge. We have a ruling in which she knows that there would be repercussions if she authorizes the extradition request. But she's basically seeking refuge in 
this matter of mental and physical health so that she doesn't have to rule on the other more fundamental issues and upset people in national security agencies who would want her to do the bidding of the United States government. Is the judge saying that he is as bad as Osama bin Laden, but because he might kill himself, we're not going to go to jail? It doesn't make sense to me in that way. There's a lot in her ruling that doesn't add up. And so it does seem like she was just looking for a loophole, potentially because she's aware of the pressure that was being brought to bear. And I'll say in Europe specifically, in the week to two weeks before the extradition decision, German government actually made a statement against the British government and said that they had huge concerns about Julian Assange being extradited and were uh, afraid that if he was extradited, his human rights would not be respected. This was a major development because it was a European nation speaking out against the United Kingdom. So I think she felt a tremendous pressure to find a way out of this and not authorize the extradition request. It's almost as if the governments of the United States and the UK are trying to set aside an exemption for the rights of journalists when it comes to the Internet, because that's where most of the information is going to be stored in the future. What this says is that even though Julian Assange may walk free, the government will still go after public disclosure organizations – or oftentimes we call them leak organizations. But all media organizations have leak submission systems and accept classified documents or secret documents and are using them as the backbone for investigative journalism. So what it means is anybody who does this kind of journalism is at risk of being prosecuted. And uh, you know, even though you are a U.S. government official – even though you were never given a security clearance and you shouldn't be accepted to abide by secrecy laws, even though you should be able to practice journalism under common principles of freedom of expression, the United States government may still target you. Investigative journalist Kevin Gostola publishes the blog Shadowproof. And you're listening to the news on WBAI New York. I'm Paul DiRienzo. In New York, Governor Andrew Cuomo announced today the new and highly contagious strain of the coronavirus is in New York State. He also mentioned a super spreader case at a jewelry store in Saratoga, New York, and said that the new strain may soon overtake and replace the old. The U.K. strain uh, is highly problematic, and it could be a game changer. First, for the capital region, Uh, We had the case in Saratoga. Anyone who was exposed or anyone who was exposed to someone who was exposed, please contact us. Uh, There's nothing to be ashamed of. This is a virus. It travels. But uh, we have to know containment is vitally important here. This is a virus we have to be extra careful with. We spent the morning talking to uh, global experts on this viral strain. The numbers are frightening on uh, the increase of the transmittal of the virus. Even if the lethality doesn't go up, the fact that it is so much more transmittable is a very real problem. 
And look, we are in a foot race right now, as we said, between the vaccine implementation versus the infection rate and hospitalization capacity. That's the foot race. This UK strain changes the whole foot race because the UK strain, uh, the, the rate of transmission goes way up. The rate of infection goes way up. Uh, and it's no longer the race that we were running. Apparently, the UK strain can actually overtake the original COVID strain in a matter of weeks. That's how quickly uh, it can transmit. Um, it, this is something that we have to watch and we have to pay careful attention to. The Meanwhile, in the city, Mayor Bill de Blasio today asked the federal government to ban travel from the United Kingdom. We've got a new foe now, this new variant that first was identified in the United Kingdom. Uh, we all should be worried about this. Uh, thank God, not because it's more deadly, but because it does spread, unfortunately, even faster. We need the federal government to step up here and ban all travel from the United Kingdom to the United States of America. And I'm obviously specifically most concerned about the three airports serving New York City. It's time to stop the half measures. Mayor de Blasio, the mayor and governor have been at odds over the slow pace of vaccinations in the state. Following CDC guidelines, Cuomo ordered healthcare workers to get the vaccine. But with 2.1 million workers eligible and only 900,000 shots distributed, the state has a long way to go before the next group on the list, essential workers and persons over 75, can get their shots. Hospitals have been the primary focus. Because 1A, the people we're now vaccinating, are healthcare workers. How do you get healthcare workers? You get them through the hospitals. That's why the focus has been on the hospitals. Uh, why is the focus on healthcare workers? That's the CDC guidance. Uh, basically, every state in the nation has accepted healthcare workers because they are the front line. Uh, they are exposed to people with the virus. And if a healthcare worker gets sick, they are then a super spreader. We have it opened for all healthcare workers are now eligible. And the hospitals are focusing on the healthcare workers. So far, 900,000 vaccines have been distributed for 2.1 million healthcare workers. Uh, obviously, we don't have enough vaccine distributed for all healthcare workers. Uh, well, uh, let's open it up to other people. Forget the healthcare workers. You can't forget the healthcare workers. Uh, these are the nurses. These are the doctors. These are the people who are on the front line. And that's the governor, Mayor de Blasio, explained the low rate of vaccination in New York on vaccine hesitancy. He says about a third of healthcare workers. Some estimates are up to 50 percent. So let's say at least a third of folks in general are still hesitant. Uh, that's another reason why you need more flexibility. Because if I'm looking at a group of a thousand people and three or four hundred of them are not yet ready to be vaccinated, I don't need a thousand doses for that group. I need to finish that group and go to the next group. And we've got to recognize that where there is willingness, that's where we need to lean in. And when there's not yet willingness, we'll come back right around. And ironically, David, the more people get vaccinated in any priority category, the more faith it will give everyone else. But Governor Cuomo was skeptical about the numbers of health workers being reported as refusing the vaccine. 
I don't believe a hospital that says only half my workers will take it. Uh, I can tell you I'm deluged with phone calls from healthcare workers who are saying, I want the vaccine, I can't get it. Uh, we expect about a 70% acceptance rate of the vaccine. Uh, federal officials will say 70 to 90. I don't think you ever get near 90. I think if I was offering to give away cash to New Yorkers, I don't think we'd have a 90% acceptance rate. So, uh, but a 30% refusal, 25% uh, refusal is what we expect to see from the healthcare community, uh, but not 50%. The governor added he's not quite ready to make the vaccine mandatory for health workers, but it's not out of the question. We have not crossed the bridge to say, by law, you must take it. Uh, yes. Well, there is a legal question as to whether or not, with what's called an emergency authorization, you can man. This is an emergency authorization of federal approval. There is a complicated legal question as to whether or not you can mandate a person take and a vaccine that is authorized as an emergency authorization. Um, but besides the legal question, we haven't gotten there yet because I don't know that it is going to be uh, an issue. Uh, you're right. We went through this with measles. Uh, but I don't know. And you're right. You have a legal argument, especially with healthcare employees, that you could say to a healthcare employee, uh, you, um, you need to take the vaccine as a part of your job. We're not there yet. I don't, I don't believe the refusal rate is going to be that high. Uh, I think doctors get it. Despite the scary talk about vaccine hesitancy and new fast-spreading variants of the coronavirus, Mayor de Blasio says there is still hope. I talked to Dr. Fauci about this. Uh, everyone I've talked to agrees that there's a hope that at the latter part of uh, January that the impact of the holidays really will dissipate. So all those gatherings... Christmas and New Year's, et cetera, uh, whatever impact they may have had, that that will be trailing off by the end of January, just as vaccine and uh, vaccine distribution is intensifying. That's the hope for how we uh, continue the turn the corner here. Mayor Bill de Blasio. And that's some of the news for Tuesday, January 5th, 2021. The news was produced by Linda Perry. Our engineer is Reggie Johnson from New York City for the WBAI News. I'm Paul DiRienzo. Thank you so much for listening.